Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Inner Umpire by Pastor Sean Wood. Churchill looks like, right? But he was horrified. And the artist says, what's the problem? He said, that's not me. He said, the guy you've painted there, he said, looks like a miserable old coot. And the guy says, mate, I only painted what was in front of me. I'm paraphrasing. It actually got to Churchill. It's very serious. Churchill goes and gets his wife and says, come and have a look at this painting. And she walks in and she says, what's the problem? And he says, well, have a look at it. He's painted me as somebody who's just this... Oh. And she says, She's actually, he's actually painted you exactly as you are, Winston. The shock for Winston was when somebody painted his portrait and he saw himself for who he really was. And that's what Paul's doing in the gospel right now. And he doesn't want the Jews. The Jews don't get a back door here. If you're religious and you go to church, you don't get a back door here. Because Paul says, all fall under the one banner. Let's keep reading. Paul goes on and says, verse 13, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We'll touch on that that word justified in a moment. But but Paul's saying it's not just the hearers. And this is the problem with the Jews. The Jews went to temple religiously, if you could use that word. They never missed going to temple. They they listened to the word. They they memorized the word. They had a... uh, Revelation speaks and is symbolically speaking of this, but they speak of a thing called phylacteries. Stick that in your phylactery. That's not what it meant. A phylactery was what all the Jews, as they were coming to temple, they would, they would wear a phylactery on their turban. And it was basically just a rolled up scroll. And the rolled up scroll was a measurement of all the Torah that you had committed to memory. The more you had committed to memory, the greater your scroll. Or let me put it for you, if I can, into 20th century lingo. The more you go to church and, and the more you appear to know the word of God, the more spiritual you are. Paul says, no, you're not. Paul says, you think you guys are spiritual. You think you guys have got it all together. It's not about hearing the word of God. It's not about reading the word of God. It's about the penny dropping and it's actually got some traction in your life. That's what Paul says. You think the law separates you? The law doesn't do anything for you if all you do is hear it. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you can come to church all your life and not be one step closer to God. You can hear the Word of God, you can read the Word of God, you can study the Word of God like these guys did, but they still had a problem with the umpire. So many people have asked me, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's what's the difference? We're going to unpack that today. Because there's an enormous difference, and it's good news, and it's all about Jesus. Paul says... But it's the doers of the law who will be justified. That word justified is a positional word. It's the same as the word, it's used interchangeably like righteousness is in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It speaks about our position before God. Uh, Has anybody ever heard the phrase that tries to sum up justification as as if I'd never sinned? Who's heard that? It's actually wrong. It's incorrect. That's not, that is not the fullness of the meaning of the word. And it actually robs God of his glory. And I'll tell you why. 
Justification is restoring you back to a position. We're going to unpack that a little bit more as we work our way through. It's restoring you back to a position before him where nothing is between you and him, but in full view of the fact that you are a sinner. Yes, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Yes, it's a clear record, but it's not just talking about your past. It's talking about your present. Righteousness and justification is like a resume that opens doors. And it's Jesus' resume that allows you to open the doors before him. But it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Let's keep reading. This, this next part was the clincher for C.S. Lewis. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. That's speaking about all, all the commandments and all the supposed relationship with God that Israel has. They don't have the law like you do, but what they're doing, says verse 15, when they do these things anyway, is they show that the work of the law is actually written on their hearts. And this, is, this was the clincher for C.S. Lewis. Many people who read C.S. Lewis forget the fact that he would coin himself a reluctant convert. One of the most, this is why we should not steer away from science and the evidence for the creation and all of that sort of stuff. The reason we should not do that is because one of the most intelligent minds of the last century attempted to disprove the reality of the Bible and put his faith in Christ because he couldn't. I'll give you two other examples of names you may have heard. Josh McDowell was another one. Josh McDowell was told, grew up in an alcoholic family, fantastic testimony. But, but he would say that whilst at university and sick of the Christians that were around him, they said to him, and rightly so, if you can find the body of Jesus, then Christianity goes away. If you can disprove the resurrection, Josh McDowell set out to disprove the resurrection. The rest is history. He's now one of this century's greatest apologists. Another one is Lee Strobel. The man who now writes The Case for Christ and rights of the evidence for the resurrection was the same one that put his faith in trying to disprove. C.S. Lewis says, I'm a reluctant convert, but it was this intrinsic morality, this, this morality that rests inside of all of us. Because C.S. Lewis realised, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're on the playground or it doesn't matter whether you're in a court of law or it doesn't matter where you are. Wherever you hear somebody crying out the words, that's unfair. He says they are appealing. There's a great word when we're going to talk about inner umpires. They are appealing to a sense of morality that they think rests inside of all of us. You see, if Richard Dawkins is right, if all of these antagonistic atheists are right, every person in this room is here because of blind random processes and chance. So when somebody cries unfair, that doesn't, it's survival of the fittest, remember? Nothing is unfair. But C.S. Lewis realised that there is an intrinsic moral code that rests inside of all of us, that we are actually able to distinguish good from evil. And and C.S. Lewis said, if you can call that good and that evil, there's a standard that's above all of it that you're measuring that by. And that standard is God. He is the one that has written it on our hearts. That's why we know it's wrong to steal. That's why we know it's wrong to slander your pastor. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Uh, an example of this which settles this is World War II. Um, I'll use this example a lot, but in World War II, um, after the wrap-up of World War II, they had a problem. You see, they put all of the masterminds of the Nazi regime, they put them on trial, uh, Goring and all those sort of guys, and they realised they had a problem. Every one of them they were putting on trial stood up behind the box and said, you know what, Uh, you've got me on trial here, but I actually haven't done anything wrong. Everything we did was according to German law. And they had a problem. It's why we now have the United Nations. Because... Basically, what had happened was Hitler had changed the laws in Germany to the point where it now said what you're doing is right. So they had to appeal to, here we go, an outside universal morality. Where now as a globe and as an international people, we say it's wrong to murder and genocide is wrong. We can say that. You can change the laws in your country all you like. And so they had to change the wording so that they could put these guys on trial so that they had actually committed a crime. That's why we have the United Nations. Paul goes on and says, excuse me, I've lost my spot. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience... Now, there's a word that sums up the inner umpire. The conscience is not separate from our hearts... It's not separate from your thoughts. It's not separate from your desires. But it does govern everything that happens in your life. And when there's a problem with this umpire, you can appeal to this umpire all you like. But when there's a problem, we're going to have a look at some of the problems you can have in a moment. But when there's a problem with the umpire, there's a problem in the outworking. It's why some people, this umpire here can go to sleep. This, this umpire here can become completely null and void. But it's this umpire that keeps people up at night. The fact that we all have a conscience is the reason why you take the gospel to some countries on the globe and they will kill you for it. Why? Because it unsettles this guy. The message and the truth of Jesus Christ unsettles this guy at a deep level because it is the conscience, it is our inner umpire that determines what is right and wrong. And what Paul is trying to say is, we all have an inner umpire, we all have a conscience, and the only thing that we should be allowing to appeal to that, how's that? How many times do you hear that a day, Alex? Too many, he says. The only thing that we should allow to appeal to that umpire is the gospel. Not your self-appointed religiosity, you Jewish people that think you know it all and you have it all. That's not, what, that's not what appeals to this. This is not what allows you to sleep at night. No, it's the truth and the reality of the person of Jesus. Our conscience is our inner voice. We're going we're gonna to see in a moment how it, how it outworks. Paul finishes off this, this section here in a moment with how it outworks. But I wanted to press the pause button on the word conscience this morning because it is, it is our conscience that actually... It is the veil that keeps us out of the presence of God. It's the difference between the old and the new covenant. When you say sacrifices and stuff in the old covenant, what's the difference? We're going we're gonna to unpack what all that difference is in a moment and why it is. I have enormously good news for every person in this room. But I need you to know that nobody can change that umpire on their own. That's the truth of the message of the gospel. You can't change. You can, you can obey all the rules. You can set up all the formulas and all the systems you like. But the dictionary defines this guy as being the one inside of us that determines right or wrong. And how it is that we respond both 
horizontally and vertically. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. It's that still, small voice inside of you. Remember when, remember when Elijah heard the voice of God and he's tucked away and there's an earthquake and there's a fire and there's a whirlwind, but the voice of God wasn't in the fire and the voice of God wasn't in the earthquake and the voice of God wasn't in the whirlwind, but the voice of God was in that still Small voice that we each and every have. I want to share with you some verses about conscience because, as a matter of fact, the New Testament has a lot to say about our conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll put these in context in a moment, says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, I'll explain that in a moment, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Your conscience can be weak. This inner umpire can be weak. What does a, what does a weak conscience look like? What does it look like if we are living with a weak conscience. It's like an umpire that says yes to every appeal, Alex. <laughs> you can't say yes to every appeal. Not everything is out. But what, what Paul is saying here is, he's speaking about food and ceremony and ordinances. He says, you know, for somebody who's basically a new Christian and has a weak conscience, somebody who's, who's new to the faith, uh, he sees you doing whatever you want in a sense because you have a clear conscience. But because he has a weak conscience, it sounds like license to him. It's not just outside of churches that we find weak consciences. Paul says our consciences can be weak. He also says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, your conscience can be seared. 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 says that our consciences can be seared. That's exactly how you would imagine that word. It's like branding an animal. You know, when you actually brand an animal with, with, with a hot iron like that, or if you sear something, you actually dead in that spot. There's no, there's no sense of feeling anymore. There's, there's no response. There's no nerve endings because it's been seared or branded. And that's what happens to the inside of a person's heart. But the context of 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 is apostates who had given up on their faith. And what has happened is he's addressing those, an apostate is somebody who, who has had faith in Jesus and has come to salvation but then deliberately turns their back. That's an apostate. Somebody who, who says, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm out. And, and Paul actually names a few of them in verse, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 4. But an apostate is somebody, and what had happened was these apostates, uh, Tim is, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul is describing to Timothy, what has happened is that their consciences have been seared through habitual, unrepented sin. It, it deadens us to a responsivity to God. We, we become unresponsive. It's like the gospel's appealing, and it's appealing. That is wrong, that is wrong, that is wrong, but they keep ignoring it. It's like an umpire. How many appeals? If he doesn't say something, you're going to get rid of him. Paul says our consciences can be seared. Titus, another prominent leader in the first church, another son in the faith to Paul. Paul writing to Titus says, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Your conscience can be defiled. What does that word mean? Well, 
I want to read some verses, if I can, from surrounding that. Let's, let's start at verse 10 and have a listen to what Paul is talking about when he's writing to Titus. Verse 10, for there are many, this is talking about those inside of church now, for there are many who are insubordinate, those who are uh, un- undermining authority. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party or the Jewish sect. Verse 11, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now listen to this, verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And I just want to press the pause button before we go into verse 15. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. We still have people that are preaching the gospel for shameful gain. We still have people that think this is a way to make money. We still have people that tell us that their $76 million aeroplane is a preaching machine. I haven't heard a plane speak yet. I don't know about anybody else. But they tell us that as they're landing it on their own private strip at their ranch in Texas. Something's wrong. I love what John Piper does. John Piper, one of the greatest authors I've ever read. Very, very good author. Has a prolific amount of books. Receives a prolific amount of money in royalties every year. So what he did was right at the outset, he set up a foundation called Desiring God. And every single dollar goes into Desiring God and nobody can touch it unless a handful of about five or six people sign off on it. And it all goes back out to charity. He doesn't get a dollar from it, not one. The other thing is this this inner umpire becomes defiled because we begin to justify to ourselves, it's okay, God wants me to be rich. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have stuff. I'm not saying that God hasn't given us this life and it's things to enjoy, but, but what's the number one thing in your heart? That's, that's what the appeals to. The umpire's gone deaf. And Paul goes on and says to Titus, these guys are lost. They're, their inner umpires become defiled because they're all caught up in Jewish myths and they're all following people who don't know what they're talking about. And you know what? We spend far too much time and attention worrying about everything else that's not in here. Worrying about side issues, worrying about denominational structures, worrying about uh, all these sorts of things. Be careful getting wrapped up in the teachings of the rabbis and the Jews. Why? Because they're the same people that killed Jesus. Verse 15, of course, if we finish... Verse 15 says, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And that word defiled means that they have become polluted. It's, uh, the Greek is speaking of glass. If you have pure glass that you can see through, but then you add dye or you add a contaminant to it, that is, it then becomes defiled. And what happens to the inner umpire, the conscience inside of people, is he becomes defiled because he's all wrapped up in all these other things that are outside the gospel. These, whatever it is, today there's many things that people are wrapped up in that's outside the gospel. Let's get back to what's inside the book. Let's, get, let's, let's forget the gurus. Let's forget the life coaching messages. Let's forget all that stuff for a moment and let's actually find out what God's got to say. <coughs> the inner umpire has become defiled. The other one is Hebrews 10 verse 22 tells us that, that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Your, your conscience can be evil 
And an evil conscience basically speaks of those that are outside of salvation. Because the sprinkling of the blood, we're going we're to touch on that in a moment, some really good news. The sprinkling of the blood is a symbol of an initiation of a covenant. That's what Moses did when he initiated the old covenant and the law. He sprinkled the people with the blood. It's an initiation. Your, your conscience can be evil. If it doesn't take too long to look at the news reports, it doesn't take too long to have a look at what's going on around the globe to realise there are some people in this world that have got an evil umpire adjudicating for them about what's right and what's wrong. In fact, an evil umpire looks an evil umpire looks a little bit or a lot like, if you take it to the tenth degree, Adolf Hitler is exactly what an what a evil umpire looks like. By the time uh, by the time Adolf Hitler, the wuss, took his own life, by the way, that's not publicised that that highly either. Didn't go down in a blaze of glory when Berlin was surrounded. He decided to take his own life. But but he, his inner umpire was so evil that he actually had convinced himself, you know what, I'm actually doing good for humanity. He said, if natural selection is true, which it is, I'm actually doing good because I'm getting rid of all these inferior races. It wasn't just the Jews. It was the gypsies and and the homosexuals. They're human beings created in the image of God. Leave them alone. Your conscience can be evil. But I've got some good news for people here today. I've got some enormously good news that Paul wants everybody to grab in the gospel. This is what I love about Jesus. Jesus comes down 30 years. We don't hear a whole lot about his first 30 years. Three years of ministry, he spends the whole time telling us that we're out of place with God, that religion isn't going to save us anymore. It's not about your phylacteries or or the dress you're wearing. It's not about any of those things anymore. Uh, Jesus comes down and exposes the human condition. But what I love about Jesus is he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us to wallow in our sin. There is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I want to talk to you today about the greatest hope we find. It's actually in Hebrews chapter 9, where it says he can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to read to you for a moment, if I can, from, from Hebrews 9. We will, we will work through the epistle of Hebrews and, and spend more time in this at a later date. But if you could sum up the epistle to the Hebrews in one word, it's the word better. The writer of the Hebrews wants everybody to know that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. The gospel is so much better news than the old covenant. But let's have a look at what happens here. Speaking about temple and tabernacle worship, chapter 9, verse 8, according to this, which is the the sacrifices, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. See, everybody under the Old Testament had a problem. And that problem is this guy here lifting his finger. What he's saying right or wrong. At the end of the day, these sacrifices could clean up the outside and the cup and dish. They could, they could allow you to approach God a certain distance, but you couldn't come any closer. It's why in the temple worship, we have a very, very select few people who were separate. From everybody else that did all, now, now everybody's a priest. We don't have, I'm not a priest, by the way. We actually don't have select people who are priests anymore. Everybody's a priest. The epistle of Peter teaches us that we're all now a royal priesthood. We're all able to approach God freely, just as the priests were. But I love verse 14. If we come down to verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our, plural, conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. I've got some good news here, is that our consciences can be purified. And the analogy that the writer of the Hebrews is speaking about here is the analogy of the heifer. And, and there's some great analogy in this. Under the, in Numbers 19, you'll read about an ordinance and a commandment that speaks about those that have touched a dead body. If in any way, shape or form somebody had touched a dead body, you were considered to be ceremoniously unclean and you had to go outside the camp. And while you were out there, the only way that you could rejoin was that they would have to take a heifer and sacrifice the heifer. They would then take uh, the blood of the heifer and sprinkle the tabernacle with it. They would then take the ashes of the heifer and they would take water, mix the ashes and the water, and they would go out to you outside the camp and sprinkle you with the ashes and the water. You were then immediately fully reinstated to your place and privilege and able to rejoin the camp. And now the writer to the Hebrews is explaining, when he's talking to Jews, that's what the writer to the Hebrews is, we don't know who he was, but he's speaking to the Jews who know these sacrifices, who know these ordinances, and he's speaking to them and saying, you know what guys, how much more will the blood of Christ and his body sacrificed for you bring you from way out there, because that's the message of the gospel, we lose it. The message of the gospel is putting everybody out there. You're outside the camp. You can't come in because you're unclean. And everything until Jesus is treating the symptoms, until Jesus comes along and he heals the disease. And the disease is sin. And now every single, the message of Hebrews chapter 9, the message of the gospel is this. You don't have to stay out there anymore. Your conscience can't keep you out there anymore. This, this umpire, whether he's defiled, whether he's evil, whatever it is, he can't keep you out there anymore because of the blood of Jesus. Oh, there's power in the blood of Jesus. And what Hebrews wants the Jews to know and what Paul wants the Jews to know is you can wear all the clothes you like. You can know all the scripture you like, but you'll stay outside the camp unless you come in by the blood of Christ. The message of Hebrews 9 is, have a think about it for a moment. If I walk out of this room right now and I take the life and I shed the blood of a lamb, most people here, depending on the circumstances surrounding that, there's no, there's no consequences for that. But if anybody walks out of here right now and takes the life of another human being, there are enormous consequences for that, and there should be. And why is that? Why, why is, what's going on with that? The reason is we value human blood far more than we do a lamb's blood. And so we should. But how much more, friends? How much more value is the blood of God? That's the message of the gospel. But until everybody sees it, we've, we've, this guy's got no chaos for most people. This guy's doing this. Nearly everybody's living life today with an umpire with a finger in his ears and he's not even looking. I, I don't care. You can appeal to me all you like. I'm going to live in my own little world. Sounds like relativism. Relativism is like planting your feet in the middle of air and expecting to find a foundation. It's not going to happen. 
Greg Kukul wrote a book called Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, and it's all about relativism. And relativism says, this is what's good for me. You do your thing. You, 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 you do you, friends, but this is my truth. And this is what's good to me. And love means this to me. And hate means this. And, and this is what my life is all about. And I just need to be true with myself and make a couple of covenants with the universe. Good luck. But they've got a problem with the umpire. He's got his finger stuck in his ears. And there's no chaos. And there are people sitting in church pews who think they're inside the camp and they're sitting outside. And there's people outside of churches who think they're in the camp and they're way outside. People think that inside the camp means I just be a good person, pay my taxes, have my 2.4 children. Mitchell is our 0.4, by the way. He's not all there. (laughs) You sit in the front row, my friend. (laughs) Reuben hides behind the desk now. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to stay outside the camp. But the bad news is if you can't see yourself out there to begin with, you can't come in. And you can't get in any other way except for the sacrifice of Christ. Let's finish off what Paul's got to say here. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Have a listen to this. While their conscience also bears witness. Conscience is bearing witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's the conversation of the thoughts. And when the, and when the umpire and the thoughts are having an argument, who knows how much sleep you get. You don't get a whole lot. Most men in this room that have done a little bit of life or got a little bit of life under their belt, they know, they know the voice of that guy talking inside themselves. I'm sure most ladies are the same. Their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And I love what Paul does. He's bringing everything to where it should be. Why is all of this important? Every time Paul brings it back around to why it's important. Why? Because of eternity. That's why. Verse 16, because on that day, (laughs) that day when you stand before God, Paul wants us to know something. He says, according to my gospel, the one handed down through Christ, says I didn't get it from anybody else, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And the best way to understand this is, anybody here ever been to a performance on stage? Uh, Life is like, you know, I think it was Shakespeare that said, life is like a stage and everybody's merely actors. Is that what he said? Yeah, I haven't studied Shakespeare, as you can tell. What are you laughing at? But our whole lives are like a stage play. Everything that happens on stage is what we allow everybody else to see. And there's a few people in our lives that that know us a little bit better than what happens on... Be quiet. (laughs) That know us a little bit better than what happens on stage. But I want everybody here to take some great comfort today. God knows everything that happens backstage. And what Paul says is the message of the gospel is appealing to what's going on behind the stage. Why? Because everything that happens on stage we know is a result of what's going on behind the scenes. And God says, fix the guys behind the scenes. Fix the sound guy. You can play instruments all you like, but if there's a problem with that guy, and there is, have a look at him. (laughs) But if there's a problem with that guy, you've got a problem all around. And what Paul wants everybody to know is when you stand before God, we won't be talking about what's on stage. He's going to talk about the secrets of men, those hidden imaginations of your heart. You can't hide them before him. 
And the message of the gospel is you can wear all the clothes you like and the outward appearance can be whatever you want it to be. That's why we wear shorts and thongs to church in Queensland. I remember Andrew Corbett saying, I remember saying to him one day, what's wrong with shorts? He said, they just won't have them in heaven, that's all. (laughs) Yeah. We all wear suits to church in Tasmania. Backstage again, see? (laughs) You'll do something about it. Paul was writing to one of his... I want to finish with this. Paul was writing to one of his sons in the faith, Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 19, he, he says many things to Timothy. Timothy was running a pretty problematic church. A bit like um, where some rebels from overseas come, down at Lagana there. You know, one of those problematic churches you find in Tasmania. And Timothy was running a, a really problematic church called Ephesus. And he was a young guy, Timothy, and, and, and they were looking down on him and they had, they had some pretty nasty things to say because he wasn't the pastor they wanted, but he was definitely the pastor they needed. And... Paul's writing to Timothy and he shores up a few things. He says, you know what? Basically paraphrasing, this is what Paul says, forget what everybody else says about you and forget anything and everything else except do this one thing, hold faith and a good conscience before God. And the appeal of Paul to Timothy was hold the true faith. Now the gospel of Jesus is different depending on where you go sometimes today. The appeal to Paul is, from Paul to Timothy, is this. Hold faith. Hold the gospel in all its beauty and in all its entirety and a good conscience before God. And if I could charge everybody in this room one thing this morning, it is hold a good conscience before God because you don't have to have anything else. You don't have to be outside the camp because Christ's blood was shed. And if you're sitting here this morning... No matter what, you may may never, you may may have been away from Jesus for a long time. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how far you think you've walked away from God, you are only ever one step from him. And that's the step where you turn around and realise he's been there the whole time. You may never have heard of the name of Jesus before, or you may have been serving him faithfully for 20 years. I want you to know the message of the gospel is you can live in close relationship. You can know the presence of God today in power, in manifestation. You can know it today because you can have a clear conscience before God or because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's good news. I think we should tell some people about it. Because that's good news. And I want you to know that all you have to do today is place your faith and trust in him. As we work our way through Romans, Paul's going to say, you know what, you guys think you're part of Israel because you were born into Israel. But being an Israelite, Paul's going to say, has always been a matter of your heart anyway. Not a matter of who your dad is. God. And so Paul charges Timothy to hold faith and a good conscience. I leave everybody with that charge today to hold faith and a good conscience. Come out from outside and come back into the camp. That's the message of the gospel. Let's pray.
Jesus, you are glorious, wonderful, magnificent and worthy of all the honour and all the glory and all the praise. We are so thankful for you today. I pray right now that every person in this room would have a change in their umpire. Let the gospel be the only thing that appeals to our hearts. Holy Spirit, place your finger upon that umpire, I I pray, as you so faithfully do. We give you all the thanks and all the glory in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.